Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 17, being recorded on Wednesday, March 9th. 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Happy Wednesday, Scott. Same to you. Uh, Are you traveling this week? I am not. I'm enjoying a rare, rewarding week here in Chicago, working out of my home office. Cool. Me too. I'm not traveling this week, but next week I've got a lot of travel, so I'm uh, battening down the hatches and getting ready to spread the wings. Nice. I I feel like I'm going to be on the road the next eight weeks as well, so maybe we'll talk about that a little later in the show. Yeah. Any interesting news you want to talk about? Yeah, there uh, was a lot more earnings call this week. I feel like, uh, are we not getting close to the end of the the uh, the reporting season? You would think we would be. Some of these retailers, they, um, they add an extra month in there. Um, and I think that's probably what we're experiencing is these are the guys that end in January. Gotcha. So I know JCPenney earning call is actually next week. But I saw their CEO doing some analyst interviews this week, and there were a, a couple interesting quotes that jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Such as? Uh, so a, a reminder, this is Marvin Ellison, who uh, newly in, uh, appointed CEO, and he's talking about JCPenney's decision not to close a lot of stores, um, which is somewhat controversial, like given that they're, they're on the rebound and, and uh, seeming to trend in the right direction, but they're still you know, significantly off of their performance from five years ago, for example. And so in defending his lack of closing his stores, he said, one of the main reasons that we don't want to close stores is because every market we close stores in, we take a huge hit to e-commerce in that market. Hmm. That jumped out at me for a couple of reasons. You know, we've talked on the show before about brick and one of the the big advantages of brick and mortar stores is they're a a really cost-effective marketing vehicle for the brand and that when you open stores in a market, you do really drive sales. This is the first time I've seen that same proof point from the negative perspective of when you close those stores, you lose that brand awareness and you you lose those store visits. So I found that really interesting. And I found it particularly interesting that they're using defending their e-commerce revenue as a, a core justification for keeping stores open, which... Uh, I'm not sure I potentially believe is financially prudent, but it was interesting. I kind of like it. It's kind of like stores as a loss leader for e-commerce. Absolutely. Uh, that is not what you'll find if you look at most retailers' books, by the way. But yeah, <laughs> um, but fair enough. And then uh, the, we've seen lots of these proof points from retailers, but I hadn't seen JCPenney say it before. Um, they're talking about their buying line pickup and store service, and they're adding same-day pickup to a bunch of stores. And they, they mention that when customers choose to pick up an order in-store, um, that they generally get 35% incremental spend on that visit. Hmm. And, and um, just to take it up to 30,000-foot view, so so they had Ron Johnson there, and then he got kicked out, and the board member took over that had a, had previously been CEO a long time ago. And I forget his name. Do you remember? Uh all right, we'll call him Mr. X. Yes. And then, um, so now Marvin has be- and he was always interim. And then Marvin's the new CEO. Does Marvin have an e-commerce background or what, what's his background? Uh, so first of all, the old CEO was uh, Mike Ullman. Ah, there you go. Yes. Who came back and I believe is still a board member. And Marvin came from Home Depot. Ah, okay. Cool. So I think he's primarily a supply chain guy, if I'm not mistaken. Interesting. So, so one thing we haven't talked about on the show that I think is interesting is, um, so Ron came in and his, he was at previously at Apple and his whole vision of JC Penney, and this goes back three or four years now was to make it experiential. And what I think is interesting is when you talk about retail now, everyone's trying to be experiential. So I kind of think that if they had given him time, he was probably right. You know, what if what if they'd given him two more years? And I know that I don't think financially they could have, but like in theory, you know, 
I think maybe he was right. This whole – and I saw this mock-up of a store. I don't know if they ever built it or not. I think they were going to in Dallas. Uh, and it was pretty wild. There was a coffee bar, a yoga station. Um, and then next to all these things was like little product setup areas. So near the coffee bar was like things you – know, not Starbucks, but some kind of a coffee brand. Um, there was definitely a Lululemon in there um, and these kinds of things. That was kind of experiences next to products. Uh, what do you think? Was Ron Johnson right? I am mixed. Like, I definitely think he's right about some of those elements. I certainly agree with making shopping more experiential and um, and having an entertainment component and giving people a reason to go to the store besides just the the utility needs fulfillment. And I, I certainly think some of those initiatives that he started are paying dividends for JCPenney right now. And we still see them. They're bringing back the hair salons that they had gone rid of, and now they're doing partners with like InStyle Magazine for those hair salons. And a wide variety of those things, I think, Ron probably did get right. And if those were the only changes he made, you know, we might still be talking about him at JCPenney. But I think he made two mistakes that were sort of unrecoverable and made it hard for them to have patience in him for, for these other merchandising changes to take effect. Number one, he really alienated the team. Like he came in as a bull in a China shop, wasn't willing to test anything, wasn't willing to listen to, to history and just said, we're going to do everything his way, which is obviously how Steve Jobs successfully ran things at Apple, where he came from. But, you know, I don't think Ron had the juice that Steve Jobs had to uh, sort of get the organization to blindly follow him. So, you know, there were probably a lot of people on the team that weren't necessarily rooting for Ron early on, and that made it hard to accomplish things. There were two big pillars to his strategy. One was that experiential retail. The other was we're going to rationalize pricing, and we're going to get rid of all these fake promotional pricing games we play all the time, and we're going to move to everyday low pricing. And the problem was... You could change to everyday low pricing in a day. You could execute that really fast, and the experiential retail was going to take you know a year or more to implement. And so, sure enough, they turned off all the promotional pricing right away, and they did not immediately have all these cool experiential elements that Ron aspired to have, and customers reacted very poorly to the shift to everyday low pricing. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. There was this complicated coloring scheme. Orange is Thursdays and every second Tuesday, and it's a five percent off day. Yeah, um, exactly. But not in but not in leap years. <laughs> exactly. You know what's a little sad with that? There was a lot of evidence that it wasn't going to work, right? Like Macy's had done a similar experiment with a similar result a few years previously that they certainly could have learned from. And there's a bunch of academics that have been studying this and. There's tons of data that everyday low pricing is a better pricing model, and that's certainly what the largest retailer in the world uses in Walmart. But those same studies show that you cannot transition from being a promotional retailer to an everyday low pricing retailer. Like you have to be born an everyday low pricing retailer is kind of the conventional wisdom there. Yeah. So interesting. So I think Ron was right, and you're kind of mixed on it. So yeah. So as usual, we disagree, and and I'm right, and you're wrong. Absolutely. The last week we talked about uh, Sports Authority filing Chapter 11 and closing 140 stores. And you said, um, you know, that that Dix had kind of outperformed them. And I saw they released. Did you get a chance to look at their fourth quarter? I did. And it was interesting. It wasn't a killer quarter for them. Their same store sales were down 2.5 percent Their Predictably, their stock got a nice little bump because I think most people are presuming that the sports authority bankruptcy will be favorable for them. And obviously their performance over the last 10 years versus sports authority is wildly different. But this quarter does not appear to have been a, a huge win for them. They have some other brands like Golf Galaxy, and I, I think they mentioned that they, they were going to stop reporting Golf Galaxy separately because it, it was becoming such a small percentage of the total revenue. And frankly, the performance they were having to report wasn't very fun to report. But the interesting tidbit from their earnings call to me was that they mentioned that they're expecting in the next quarter to finally take over control and ownership of their own e-commerce site. And so for those that aren't in the know, for the last about seven years, Dick Sporting Goods has outsourced their e-commerce site to a, a company that was originally called GSI and then was purchased by eBay and became eBay Enterprises and is now, again, a standalone entity, but still called eBay Enterprises. Mm. It's a funny anecdote in our industry. There's quite a few companies that outsource their websites uh, because they didn't want to 
do it as a core competency. And the majority of those companies outsourced it to GSI. The original founder of GSI was this guy, Mike Rubin, and he is my absolute sales hero because he walked into a bunch of these retailers in the 2007 through 2010 timeframe and said, hey, you should outsource e-commerce to me and you should sign a 10-year contract to do it. Yep. And the, the way he did that, though, is he would say, we're going to have to spend millions of dollars to do this for you. So I need you to sign, you know, to, to get that money back, I need you to sign a long-term deal. I totally get it. But in technology, 10 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist. 10 years is multiple generations. And so there are guys signing these contracts who are expecting their sons or grandsons to be running the e-commerce site they just signed for. But these are 100-year-old retailers, so what's 10 years? Yeah, fair enough. Over the last several years, most of those clients have been moving off of the GSI web store. Now that GSI has or eBay Enterprises has spun off from eBay, they have announced that they're no longer going to actively support their web store product. So the last few remaining clients aren't going to get any new updates, and and you know that's likely some additional impetus for them to move off. And I think that's a great decision for every retailer that this needs to be an internal core competency today. But one of the sad things that we're going to lose is one of my favorite features of GSI is every GSI install had these test products that were in the database and had to be in the live database. And so there's there's this product called Norm M Test PID and you can go to Ralph Lauren, you can go to Dick Sporting Goods, and you can do a search or you could do a Google search for Norm in Test PID, and you'll find all the GSI sites and you'll go to a product detail page for this test SKU. And it, it was always sort of a funny way to to know that a site was powered by GSI. And I'm I'm gonna be sad to see the death of the the Norm M test SKU. Yeah, they're um they are a big channel as our customer, and I think we've listed some of those on eBay accidentally, if I recall. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting thing that they sell for two cents. And so you can go to any of the stores and buy one and they'll take two cents off your credit card and you're pretty unlikely to ever get any merchandise. Yeah. Um, I've I've noticed a few sites, people have even written reviews about them. And so it's kind of funny. It's a it's technically a T-shirt skew. And so people have said it's the best fitting test skew I've ever worn. (laughs) I love my Norm M test pit. Exactly. Who wouldn't? Uh, and by the way, it says do not touch ever, it, like in the title. And so I think some of the reviews have said, it's the softest T-shirt I've ever owned. Too bad I'm not allowed to touch it. <laughs> so so um, just so our listeners are not confused, you are not strongly recommending outsourcing their e-commerce operations today. No. they're 10 years. Ex- exactly. I mean, there would be occasions when, you know, that might be a good short-term solution for you, but I, I wouldn't recommend signing a 10-year contract for anything in the e-commerce industry. And I certainly, as a retailer, would not outsource something which today is such a core part of your business. And, you know, the our industry is littered with these scary examples. One retailer I've done some work with, Advanced Auto Parts, they outsourced their e-commerce site to a third party, and then that third party got bought by their direct competitor, O'Reilly's. And so they literally got a letter, your website's going dark in 30 days, <laughs> which <laughs> nice. is a bad, a bad letter to get. Yeah. P.S. your friends, O'Reilly. Exactly. So don't recommend that. Um, I, do, I did notice also that Costco reported their earnings this week. Um, and they're you know, certainly a retailer to follow. They're the second largest retailer in the U.S. They have about 700 stores. And so to put that in perspective, you know, Walmart is well over. Well over 2,000 stores is the largest retailer in the U.S. So kind of impressive revenue per store for Costco to be number two. And their report, their earnings were okay. They had like 1% same-store sales growth. Um, and without gas, that's 5% same-store sales. And it's funny, like most retailers blame gas prices on on their poor performance. Like if gas is too high, they blame it. If gas is too low, they blame it. Costco has a legitimate reason to blame gas. Costco sells a lot of gas. And so when the price of gas goes down, obviously their revenue goes down. So, you know, if you if you take that fluctuation out, they grew 5%, which is pretty good. What's interesting is they've said their main strategy for growth is going to be to open more stores. And so they're opening 30 new stores this year, which obviously you know, flies in the face of almost every other retailer's trend. Yeah. And once again, Q&A was some of the funnest part. So at one point, they're asking the CFO, what keeps you up at night? 
And this is this guy, Richard Galanti. And his answer is, everybody in the world not wanting to leave their house and only typing stuff to order and getting it at their front door. (laughs) (laughs) Which I believe is another word for Amazon. Yeah, or e-commerce even, yeah. Exactly. That's a funny comment. Costco has some of the most rudimentary e-commerce in the industry. They don't allow in-store pickup, for example. And so he specifically got asked, hey, are you going to enable more omni-channel features? Are you going to allow in-store pickup? And his answer was, no, uh, we don't expect to roll that out any anytime soon. We want to do everything possible to get people into the stores and not just come to our the front of our store to pick stuff up. Mm-hmm. And so their whole mindset is still customers should just want to shop in our store. We just want to get more customers to our store and we'll make more money. So we're going to open more stores that are closer to more customers. Yeah. And it's it's crazy. Obviously, they're competing directly with Sam's Club. And this is an area where I feel like Sam's Club has a huge advantage because, you know, Walmart is a very good e-commerce operator, obviously not when you compare them to Amazon, but uh, compared to almost anyone else, uh, they have a huge investment. They have a very uh, significant in-house capability. And Sam's Club kind of gets that e-commerce capability for free. And then, you know, and so they they do very good e-commerce at Sam's Club. And then you've got Costco at the other end of the spectrum is potentially like the most digitally uh, nascent uh, retailer out there, which is shocking for the second largest retailer in the country. Well, a couple of tidbits. I've, I've been told that Costco is by far the largest merchant in the Google Express program. Uh, and within that, it's mostly bottled water, uh, which is kind of interesting. So I imagine all these Google carrier couriers carrying bottles of water up big hills in San Francisco because that's kind of essentially what they're doing. going to Costco, getting it and bringing it to people, um, which can't be efficient. <laughs> um, and then the the other one is I think Instacart uh, does a lot of business with Costco as well. And and uh, one of the articles I read after the CFO's comment was they should um, ex- you know, do a lot more with some of the daily delivery guys to try to you know, make connect the dots there. Uh, and I have to admit, I, I'm not a huge fan of going into the Costco store. I love, you know, I love the products and the way they do it where there's, it's not as overwhelming as traditional thing, but you have to, I, the only time I get to go in there is on weekends and I'm in there fighting like 8 trillion other people and the line to the 50 cent hot dog thing blocks you getting out. And you know, all, all that stuff just takes, you can't go there and not spend an hour and a half to two hours. Then I always buy a thousand frozen burritos I'm not going to eat. Um, and so since I've started using Amazon Prime now, I've, I haven't been to Costco in quite a while because it satisfies the the things um, that, that we need to get. And I've noticed they're adding more SKUs to Prime now that tend to have a bulk option as well, especially around drinks and baby kind of stuff, etc. So uh, I wonder if Costco's got a little bit of a blind spot to Prime now that it, it could be an interesting kind of a something to watch there. Absolutely. And unlike some of those delivery services that that Costco's participating with, like the Prime Now, you know, is potentially fundamentally profitable, right? And obviously the 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 Google Express and the Instacart, like at their current economic model, it does not appear to be scalable or sustainable. So I, I do think that that they have a gap. Again, their performance this quarter wasn't that bad, but when you look at the macro trends, Costco members are getting older and they're not necessarily capturing new younger customers that likely are prime now shoppers. And so there's some risk that the current customer base is going to age out. And the thing you have to remember about Costco, they have a totally fascinating model. They're the lowest margin retailer in the world. Like they refuse to make more than 15% on a skew, which means their net margins are like 2%. And to put that in perspective, Walmart, like the most price aggressive retailer in the world, net margins are at like three and a half percent. So they're they're almost half as profitable on a per skew sales basis as Walmart. And so the way they make money is selling those fifty five dollar memberships. And so, you know, if they can't attract new customers, they actually can't make more money by getting those older customers to come to their store more and spend more and buy more frozen burritos, right? Like they have to bring new blood into the the market or at least get those existing customers to keep renewing every year. Yeah, and if they're growing 5% without gas, I think you said, but they're adding a fair number of stores, I bet their same store sales are down, which is never good. And when that's happening, you don't go build 30 more stores. So that's a little concerning that they're kind of getting in front of their ski tips. 
Exactly. Any other earnings of note? Yeah, a few more. Um, I don't necessarily have a lot to say about this, but Urban Outfitters uh, had their earnings. And I guess the thing that jumped out to me was, you know, they own a few brands, like obviously the flagship Urban Outfitter brand. They also own Anthropology. And those are two brands that had been consistent performers and had uh, favorable same-source sales um, since the beginning of their their existence. And both brands were down this quarter, which I know for Anthropology was the first time it had ever been down. And it might have been the first time that Urban was down as well. Um, and so obviously we've talked a lot about, you know, the hit apparel uh, is taking in general, shifts in millennial spending, and it, it, like certainly it fears that those things are having an effect on Urban. Uh, but again, Urban opened a bunch of stores, so they got more revenue than just their same-store sales, and they actually exceeded their guidance. So despite the fact that they were down, they, they actually their stock went up 15% because they surprised the analysts. Uh, but when you look at the retail fundamentals, it's probably alarming that that some of those brands that had been, you know, outperforming the market pretty consistently, you know, finally, finally took a dip. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of, and this is totally off topic, but there's this uh, Shake Shack reported this week. Uh, and they do this cute thing where instead of saying same source sales, they call them same shack sales. Nice. I, I thought you would like that. I do. I, I both like same shack sales. I like shacks and I like Shake Shack. <laughs> yeah. I think we can uh, unanimously vote that we're pro Shake Shack. I am indeed. And in fact, some, when we talk about user interfaces for mobile, like a big, a big debate in the industry is this using this icon called the hamburger. And, you know, do people really understand that that means menu or should you actually label the icon with the word menu? And if you look at that, that most common icon, it literally is the Shake Shack logo. So it's perfect. Ah, I didn't, you know, that's interesting. I I use the Shake Shack logo as my example all the time. Hmm. Um, but so, opposite end of the spectrum from Urban Outfitters, who has kind of been performing well, despite the fact that everyone's saying millennial apparel is not thriving, the poster child for not thriving in apparel would be Gap. And they had their earnings uh, report this quarter, and there was something super alarming in it. For them, same store sales were down 4%, which you know kind of mirrors a lot of the other mall apparel retailers. But what was shocking to me is their e-commerce sales were up 1%. So as you like to remind us, the average e-commerce site is up like 15%. Yep. And by the way, the CEO of The Gap is this guy, Art Pet, Art Peck, who ran the e-commerce operations in till February of 2015. He actually got promoted to CEO because of the good job he did in digital. And now that he's the CEO, they're growing 1% in a market that's growing 15%. I don't know what's broken there, but that's really scary. I think those 45 days he was not on the job is probably where it tanked. Yeah, they apparently did not backfill that as uh, successfully as they had hoped. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So I didn't uh, realize he was the digital guy that had gotten promoted. Yeah, it's a great story. You know, there had been a few um, digital guys that are getting promoted into that C-suite. And, you know, he's the poster child as a the really one of our first digital CEOs of a of a brand that isn't a natively digital brand. And I don't know exactly what the root cause of the, the 1% performance is, but it'll be curious to see how they react. Mm, yep. Speaking of same store sh- sales and same shack sales. sales. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, channel Advisor, as you know, we do this monthly same store sales report uh, and we just came out with February results. So I just wanted to give our listeners some highlights there. Uh, first of all, one thing we struggled with this year, and I thought uh, I thought I had a break from this because uh, earlier, uh, well, uh, last year we had the Cyber Monday moving months, which caused no end of confusion and consternation in my world because uh, we had to report each month kind of with and without Cyber Monday, uh, which is a lot of extra work. Uh, it's a leap year, so we have the same problem where there's an extra day in February this year. So if you compare February of 16 to 15, it will naturally do better because there's an extra day. So you may be saying to yourself, wow, what difference could an extra day make? And it actually ends up being something like 3.472 something something percent when you when you do the math. Is that also pi? It is not pi. They're unrelated. Dope. <laughs> pi circles and leap years are just kind of different. I just went from shakes to pi. Sorry. <laughs> um so, so some of the results, uh, the fastest growing channel was Google Shopping at 35.4%. So I'll, I'll 
that's the 29-day version. Um, if we take a day out to make it more apples to apples, it was 32.8%. So there's a good example where you can see it's about a 3.5% delta, um, a, a juice that you get in a leap year that you wouldn't have in a non-leap year. Um, so that was the fastest-growing channel. And again, you mentioned it earlier, but the benchmark we always use is 15%. And then this category we call other third-party marketplaces was 34.7. Comparison shopping engines came in at 17.1, largely driven by Google Shop. Shopping, uh, Amazon at 16.6%, uh, and eBay came in at 95 which is pretty strong showing for them, um, but I think it, a lot of it was driven by the leap year. Uh, they were actually 5.3 when you take that out. Uh, and then traditional AdWords is being heavily cannibalized by product listing ads, and it came out down 13.2%. Um, so the big surprise for me was the strength in Google Shopping. So Google is definitely... Uh, you know, they seem to be very much focused on increasing all the dials of Google Shopping PLA. So the number of units that show up, the frequency, the coverage, uh, all these things, they're adding merchants in all regions. So they, they seem to be very full bore on this program um, and also a lot on mobile. Um, Amazon was a little soft in February, I'll have to say. It, it kind of, you know, we're used to them kind of growing more in the 20% range. Uh, so kind of 16.6 for the 29 days and 12.2 for the 28 days was a little soft. Uh, it's nothing to be overly concerned about or anything. So we'll kind of have to see where March comes in. But I just thought it was interesting that uh, it was a little soft. And I looked at the data and didn't see anything jumping out at me. There was nothing in our, our software release or anything that would have caused that. Um, maybe a little bit of weather, you know, it is unseasonably warm, um, here. And so maybe they, maybe they had a, uh, last year they had sold a ton of coats and this year they couldn't really comp very well against that or something, but, um, we'll have to see. So when you get down to monthly in the world of, of commerce, it's hard to really understand what the trends are. Very interesting. Do you have a premise for why Google shopping is outperforming all the other vehicles? So, so consistently? So it works pretty well. Retailers like it. Um, what I tell a lot of retailers is it's the one place on the internet where you don't compete with Amazon. So Amazon proper has made the decision not to be in PLAs. Um, the exception is sometimes they'll run some Kindle and they may run Echo. I haven't checked that in a while. Um, and then they also have Zappos, which you know Amazon owns. And they sometimes you will see uh, the Quidzy family. So uh, diapers and all that whole um the soap and all those guys, um, they will actually do PLAs. Uh, but for the most part, if you're in electronics or sporting goods or any of those kind of categories, uh, you don't compete with Amazon. So, uh, so we find that, that it, a longer tail set of retailers do really well in Google shopping and Google's done a good job with that program of, of keeping the quality high, uh, adding merchants and effectively trading off over time with, traditional AdWords out of budgets. So our customers, you know, so this, this, the whole story here, and you know this, but I'll just kind of recap it. it. There used to be a free comparison shopping called Google product search or GPS. Uh, and then Google transitioned it to a paid program that's called Google shopping slash PLA. It's kind of confusing. Google shopping's the front end. PLA is the monetization kind of system on the back end. Um, and, as they did that, what, what happened is we went from a place, if there was a pie chart of where people were spending money on Google, it was 100% AdWords, zero Google product search because it was free. Now we're at 60% plus Google Shopping, 40% AdWords. So over time, Google has consciously, and th this is for, you know, clearly in e-commerce, this wouldn't be true for travel or anything like that. Google has pretty consciously moved consumers to this program versus AdWords. Uh, and I think it's just a better user experience. You see the picture for the product, a price. So before you click, you can pre-filter and say, I wasn't looking for you know a $300 pair, pair of jeans. I need the $30 pair of jeans that I see over here on the left. Um, so therefore, it actually tends to convert better uh, in aggregate because the consumer has pre-filtered. Um, so I can only guess... You know, it seems like Google has awoken to the threat of Amazon, uh, and maybe there is some correlation between this doing well and Amazon not doing as well. Because, as you know, Amazon gets a ton of traffic from AdWords and SEO, and as Google increases the pixels that go towards Google Shopping and PLA, you just naturally think there's going to be less traffic to go to those other programs. So there may be some correlation there because uh, you know it just kind of makes sense from a real estate perspective. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, most of my clients 
has such a favorable return on ad spend from those PLAs that a frequent question we get is, should we even be doing AdWords? Yeah, and our argument there is kind of the shelf space argument, and it's kind of like, well, you know, uh, Google doesn't make you choose, so you can do an and and not an or, so you might as well be in both, and you can actually kind of trim your bid a little bit on the um, on the AdWords side, and, and uh, because so many dollars are sloshing up to the PLAs, we found that you can kind of start to trim for non-branded terms. You can trim your your bidding there and not really be hurt that much. So it's a shelf space. If you can get two spots on the shelf, you might as well kind of go ahead and take them. And, and the third spot on the shelf would be an SEO kind of a link. Yep. The uh, The other thing I like to remind clients about in that calculus is there's a ton of search terms that have high buying intent but aren't product-centric. So one limitation of the PLA is, is it, it has to be for a product. And so you know when people are searching for like category search terms – Obviously, you can have a Google AdWords ad, but showing a PLA is not going to have the same relevance. Yeah. Now, now, um, you know, this is where it kind of borderline conspiracy theory. What, what you, so Google's running a test program, as you know, on mobile. And you and I have talked about this a lot. We have this huge industry problem around mobile confusion, uh, conversions. And, um, so Google has this program called Purchase on Google. This is on Android only right now. And PLAs are the platform for it. So the way it works is you do a search for something like, let's say, a winter coat. And you can actually buy it right from the PLA, and it's integrated with your Google Wallet that is connected into your um, Google Play App Store. Um, I actually think that's a pretty good idea because I think this this whole kind of drilling into a website desktop metaphor doesn't work on mobile. It's not how they do it anywhere in China or any of these other places that are ahead of us. Uh, so you could say, you know, the connecting those dots you're you know what you could say is the reason google's doing this is you know number one they they kind of hurt amazon but number two if, if they can train consumers enough with these ads then it makes it that much easier to put that purchase piece in there and effectively build a marketplace and solve the mobile conversion problem which which i still am convinced is a huge challenge for google and, and everyone in the industry absolutely totally agree Changing topics a bit, Amazon launched an interesting new shopping vehicle this week. Did you notice that? I did. It was kind of uh, – Amazon's been doing a lot of surprise announcements. So usually uh, we've had more kind of – I don't know, note, note that these things are happening. But they just launched uh, in a lot like the private label apparel where it was kind of like rumored one day and it was out the next. Uh, very similar. There was kind of like this rumble that there was going to be a new live streaming thing. And then suddenly it was live. Um, so what it's it's a it's a it's an interactive thirty minute live show, uh, which is very weird in this kind of world of binge when I want to. It's on nine Eastern every weeknight between nine and nine thirty, uh, and it's effectively like a QVC or an HSN show. So there's three hosts, and they go through a pretty set kind of list of products and. Um, but it's very weird. It's more content driven than product driven. And they actually did a very good job. I watched, I've watched a couple of these now. Uh, we're only on number two here. Um, and what's interesting is I, I felt like the quality was very high for something that was kind of a one Oh, like their first show. Um, some of the cool inner, you know, kind of Amazonifications of these things um, as they're talking in the video frame below is a little carousel of products. Uh, and what's cool is it's kind of like lightning deals where you can see what happened in the past and what's coming. So uh, I found it cool that you could kind of like tune out and say, all right, I don't really care about this product they're talking about. I'm going to check email. And then when they started talking about the one you saw coming, then you could learn more about it. Uh, then with that little product carousel, they never talked about prices on the live show. But as you go in the product carousel and you click on them, let's say one was for this new kind of nail polish, um, you click on it and it goes to a product page on Amazon and now you're logged in with your Prime and all that stuff. And so now you're in a normal Amazon kind of shopping experience. Um, the other thing that was interesting is because um, if you watch QVC and HSN, they do a lot of call-ins and a lot of feedback from the audience um, through the dial-ins. Uh, and they'll have a lot of people, you know, a lot of times they love to put someone live and it's, you know, Rosalie from Iowa, she's like, I've had 10 of these bags and I love them and it's the best bag I ever had. Um, so they'll have those kind of like real-time reviews. Um, Amazon doesn't do that because there was no dial-in. But what they did is almost like a tweet stream, but it wasn't Twitter. So there was a chat window and you could you logged in with your Amazon credentials and 
you could do emoticons and chat and ask questions. And then occasionally they would break. Uh, so, so there's walls around the studio and those things are streaming by and it's near real time. So this, the thing you see in your browser is you're seeing on the TV show too, which is pretty interesting. I'm not sure exactly how they did that. Um, and then they, two times in the show, they kind of break and they have someone curating that. And then they'll actually ask the talent, the questions and say, you know, Sarah from Iowa is very interested in understanding, you know, what you felt about, you know, does this nail polish go on smooth and stuff like that. So it was, it was actually very well done. I was, I was kind of impressed. I, I don't think it's time to call it the death of QVC and HSN right now, but when you think about all they're doing in fashion and with these basics and the private label, I, I do think there's it is a, another really interesting threat to um, both apparel retailers, and it definitely is. If I was HSN and QVC, I'd be watching it very closely. No, I totally agree. Uh, I I don't think it's an immediate threat because I I don't think the core QVC shopper that that fifty five year old woman who's sitting at home on her couch with a stack of post-it notes to write QVC numbers down as she sees them. Like she's not likely streaming video from Amazon and shopping. But the fear if you're QVC or HSN is, you know, those the, their core customers are going to age out, right? And their their purchase power is starting to decline and they desperately need newer younger consumers and that's the audience that i think uh this this amazon product uh, appeals to immediately so you know i think it's suddenly much more competitive for that new customer and you know at the moment the there's way less friction to uh from the time you see that that product on the amazon show to the time you buy it than there is to buy something from one of the the home shopping networks so i think they have a a lower friction experience and where i think they just absolutely kill the home shopping guys um, is on shipping, right? Mm -hmm. So both HSN and QVC aren't very good shippers. Like part of the reason is I think they drop ship a lot of the product from, you know, direct from the manufacturer. So they, they just don't have that much control about how fast it gets there. But um, you know, on average you're paying for shipping uh, from the home uh, shopping networks and, a most people don't like to pay for shipping. Your your delivery time is like five to fifteen days, and if you want to return it, you're paying to return it. So you know suddenly Amazon plops in there, and you know now if you're a Prime member, you get that stuff tomorrow, right? And if they figure out a way to tie it into Prime now, fifty percent of the U.S. population can suddenly you know get that stuff in their home an hour after seeing it on the video stream. So I do think. Uh, that this is probably a scary announcement for the, the uh, both HSN and QVC, and I, I think they're going to have to figure out how to respond. Yeah, 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 I agree. Well, I think that's most of the news that we saw this week, um, and I thought it'd be interesting to kind of have a little bit of a longer discussion on something. You've, you've been traveling a lot to see clients over the last three or four weeks, um, and they're always asking you strategic advice. Is there any kind of interesting new frequent conversations or topics that you're getting into with clients that we can uh, discuss on the podcast this week? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, for some reason, there are always topics that come up in clusters. So you, you end up having the same conversation with a few different clients. And I, I suspect part of that is because the clients talk to each other. A conversation that we've had with clients a number of times over the last several weeks is around what the right amount of products to show as a result for an e-commerce search or when someone clicks a category or subcategory page on an e-commerce site, right? Like, so it's an age-old debate, you know, should, should I have 50 results for this search? Should I have 150 results for this search? And how should I display those results? What's the answer? The answer is 37. Oh, okay, good. You heard it here first. Fortunate answer for Razorfish, unfortunate answer for clients is that the correct answer varies for every client, right? Like every experience, every audience is slightly different. But the good news is that the answer is knowable. There's a, a well-founded methodology to do split path testing and give different types of results to different customers and measure the level of engagement with each of those results. And so we can watch you know, how many products did a customer investigate under these different scenarios? And, you know, how many products did they engage with and how many did they add to cart and ultimately purchase? And what I always find interesting is that 
the answers are more dynamic than you might think. So the first thing is the number of products you should show for a search uh, result is dramatically different than the number of products you should show for a category. And frankly, most e-commerce sites are built on these templates where the, the search result and the category page are basically the same template that show the exact same number of results. And maybe category just has an extra little banner in it. And so part of the reason is, of course, that uh, search is almost always sorted by relevancy. So the likelihood of the first result in search being the, the one that you're most likely to buy is high, and the likelihood of the 400th result being the one that you would buy is very low. And so you know, the, the number of results you should optimize has a lot to do with how many results you have that are truly relevant to each search. So for most clients, we actually recommend that you look at your relevancy scores and that, you know, you might get a different number of results for different searches based on how many searches were relevant to that. Does personalization come into this? Because maybe for, you know, for me, you know a lot about my past history and you have more relevant results, but for Joe new shopper, you know, because you have less history, the results may not, you may not know them to be relevant. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And the, the short answer is it absolutely can. The products are not very good at doing that yet. There's really two search engines that dominate e- uh, e-commerce for enterprises. There's this product called Indeca that's now owned by Oracle that's been the sort of Rolls-Royce search engine for a long time. And then there's an open source search engine that was originally developed by, by Lucent that's called Solar. And the overwhelming majority of enterprise e-commerce sites are on one of those two search engines. They've gotten very good at calculating relevancy, but neither one is great at truly personalized relevancy for each consumer. And, you know, whether this is true or an excuse, there's some fear that if two people type in the same search and get different results, that that could potentially cause some usability problems. So when you you like, you know, bookmark a search result and mail it to someone else. And when they render that same search result, they, they're going to see a different product. I email you search results all the time. So it's totally going to what happened to us. Exactly. You and my mom both. What you see at the moment is very often a few of the tiles in the search result are reserved for evil advertisements that look like search results rather than actual search results. And so very often those those tiles are fed by an entirely different system. And it's it's often a, a product recommendation engine or an ad server. And those products are actually much better at one-to-one personalization. So at the moment, you know, you might have two tiles reserved on that top row for personalized products, and then the rest of them are in relevance sorted order straight from solar or straight from Indeca. Uh, just one thing to think about there is having a simple template that's the same for search and category probably doesn't make sense because in that category search, you probably do want them exploring many more products. And so when we do the split path testing, usually the number of search results you should give someone depending on the product category is kind of somewhere in that 25 to 50 results range. And in the category pages, it can be much longer. It can be like 50 to 75 or even 100 results, depending on the product. And one of the things you always have to think about is there's three ways to show the results. So the traditional way that e-commerce sites originally did this is they were paginated. If you had 100 results, you might have 10 results per page, and you show in the results page 1, page 2, page 10, and you make the customer click next page, next page, next page. In the recent times, it's gotten more trendy to do these endless scrolling pages. The further you scroll down, the more and more products just get rendered as you scroll, and so it seems like the page never ends. And then there's kind of this middle compromise where... It's all on one page. It shows a certain number of results, and then you see a view more button. And when you click that view more button, it renders more results on the same page that you're already on. Interestingly, for most product categories, the user experience we like the best is the view more. Endless scroll has a variety of problems, but view more has better affordance. It's more understandable and usable for a customer than the paginated results. And my favorite learning from doing all these tests is that the number of products that you should return on a desktop experience is very different than the number of products you should return on a mobile experience. And so this is another argument against responsive design, and I think we talked about this on a couple podcasts ago, 
that, you know, the best mobile experience probably is different than, you know, just resizing the best desktop experience. And so changing the experience on the server and then delivering it to the mobile device probably makes more sense for some pages than just having the device reformat the page, which is essentially what responsive design is. Well, I can't tell every client that they ought to follow the same template. It's it's really interesting to think about that paginated versus endless scroll versus view more paradigm. And it's definitely interesting to think about having a a different answer for search than category pages and a different answer for desktop pages than mobile pages. One, one thing I've said, so this whole topic of optimization is interesting where you're doing these A-B tests. And I feel like when I talk to retailers, they do these tests, they come up with an insight, and then they're kind of done. But I often wonder, you know, so number one, consumer behavior is changing so fast. I don't know if you're ever done. Uh, and then number two, you've got all the seasonality and all the different form factors. Just even, you know, Samsung S7 came out this week, and maybe that starts to change things in, in consumer behavior. Do, do you guys have a recommendation for how often you do this kind of optimization exercise? Yeah, so you should always be running tests, right? And so usually you you have a backlog of tests that you want to run, and there are a lot of these tests that you're absolutely right, like conventions change all the time, so you should be retesting. And there's a lot of... Um, diciness in the math around testing. So it's very easy to get false results in these tests. So you ought to always be re-verifying tests. And so what what ends up happening is you have a huge backlog of things you want to test. You have a certain budget of testing, which you know probably isn't economic, but it's amount of human resources you have to manage tests. And you're just constantly working through that backlog because two you know, really sad facts about this this whole notion of testing. Uh, testing is a super useful tool. We highly recommend it. But a lot of conversion optimization people, it's the only tool they have in the bag. And they're just like, you ought to test everything and you ought to go with whatever works. And the dirty little secret is we've had these testing tools for a long time in e-commerce. The average conversion rate today is about 2%. And the average conversion rate 10 years ago was 2%. Yeah, And you go, wait a minute, (laughs) how has testing not improved conversion over the last 10 years? And the answer is the overwhelming majority of these tests revert to the mean, right? Like they show an initial result and over a greater period of time, they revert back to the previous norms. You need to constantly be evolving and constantly be verifying those things. And the, the second corollary there is there's this whole cottage industry that I'll call testing porn. And these are sites that share other people's results with you. And it's fascinating, right? And, you know, it's great to have a speaker to show that goes, here's 10 great A-B tests we ran, and here's the results. And the problem is no two sites have the same traffic. No two sites have the same user base. All of these tests are based on this premise that the things that are changing are independent variables. And very often they're dependent on other things happening on the page. And so... You simply can't look at another site's test results and conclude that what worked for them is likely to work for you. So uh, testing is a journey, not a destination. Cool. Interesting. That's uh, interesting. It's coming up in these clusters. I, uh, I often wonder why that's happening, too. Sometimes I think people read the same articles, too. Like there's, and it gets passed around. There's like this viral nature of, of articles that causes a lot of these questions to come up. Absolutely. And I think these days the big one is people listen to the Jason and Scott show and then discuss it the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Now they know the answers. Exactly. So it'd be kind of recursive to talk about what people are talking about because they listen to the podcast. (laughs) I did want to add another new feature as we're coming up on our time limit this week. You know, there's a ton of events in our industry and we're kind of in heavy event season right now. So I know you and I are both going to be at a few events together and there, you know, some events we're each attending. So I thought maybe we'd mention some of those events to our listeners. And if, if folks are going to be there, you know, it'd be great to reach out. We'd, we'd love to meet some of the listeners and get some feedback in person. Yeah. Up, up first, I'm going to be at uh, Bronto, who's an email uh, vendor um, that was acquired by NetSuite. Uh, they have their Bronto Summit in Miami. So I'm going to be there on the 16th. Awesome. And then... The following week, uh, March 21st, is the Adobe Summit, which is a very large show for all the Adobe customers. It's historically been in Salt Lake, which is where Adobe's based, and they literally have outgrown Salt Lake City. So there aren't enough hotel rooms in all of Salt Lake for the event. So they've moved to Las Vegas, and of course, the whole event fits in one hotel there, which is the Venetian. 
<laughs> and then uh, you're excited about this new show that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. The next show I'm going to is the very end of March. So March 30th through May 1st. And it's in Austin, Texas, which I always like an excuse to visit Austin. And we have a great office there. So I like to visit some of my colleagues. But this show is called Conversion XL Live. There is a, a small uh, boutique conversion agency based in Austin called Conversion XL. It's uh, run by a really smart guy, Lapeep Laja. And uh, he is putting on his first show. And uh, I am super eager to go because there are these big shows that we all attend, and it's the echo chamber. We all attend them. We hear the same things. You know, we tend to regurgitate a lot of the same pieces of insight and those sorts of things. So I become a big fan of finding these smaller shows that get these really smart practitioners delivering content. And I feel like I get a lot more out of those than I do the most mainstream shows. And the problem with the small shows is you go to one and it's great and you go back the next year and it's the same speakers doing the same thing. So I try to find a new small show every year that has a set of speakers I'm excited about hearing from. And uh, this year, uh, Conversion XL is it. And so, you know, frankly, I hope hope to learn a number of tidbits that I'll share on the on the podcast or with my clients as my own brilliant insight. Is that during South by Southwest or is it just miss it? It is not. We are in the midst of South by Southwest right now, in fact. There's not a lot of, uh, this is off topic, there's not a huge amount of buzz about South by Southwest. There's, I haven't heard like the killer, you know, it was the first year was the checking, checking in, and then it was like devices. And so it'll be interesting to it's, see. I mean, I, I'm sure the show is still great. There's a bunch of great content there. We We have a big presence there. But in my mind, the show has kind of jumped the shark. Like it's, it's become so popular and so mainstream that, you know, it no longer is the hip place where new companies are launched and new things are announced. There's a, a consultancy that we compete with a lot that, are, that actually do an excellent job, but I like to make fun of them because they were originally an accounting firm. I have a lot of friends that work there. I, you know, I, I certainly hold them in high regard, but I was, I was joking. They made a big announcement that they were going to have a huge presence at South by Southwest to announce that they've really arrived as a digital consultancy. <laughs> And so I like to say when the accountants are going to the show because they think it's a hip digital show, you know, the show is over. Yeah. And you and I aren't there. So how good can it be? Exactly. Uh, then uh, we start some of the vendor shows. So Demandware is April 4th in sunny Hollywood, Florida. Uh, that's interesting. I think that's the first time they've left Boston, if I recall. So that'll be interesting and move there. Yeah, I think that's a wise change of venue. And then I'm more excited about the next vendor show. Yeah, it's Channel Visor Catalyst, uh, April 11th. Uh, and you'll be speaking there. And I'm super bummed because I cannot make Catalyst this year due to a personal conflict. But you're holding the line and uh, going to keep an eye on everybody, which I really appreciate. I will. And I definitely attend my session because I'll be sharing some interesting personal facts about Scott that he wouldn't want out. Thanks. Thanks, man. Uh, and then we're both going to be at Shock Talk, which is May 16th. Uh, and we have our own little caricatures, which is super exciting. I do love a caricature. And then I'm speaking, I do a pre-conference full day about Amazon at Internet Retailer, which is June 6th in Chicago. Uh, are you speaking at Internet Retailer? I am not speaking at Internet Retailer. I do, of course, live in Chicago, so I, I'll be at the show and, and uh, happy to have yourself and all the our loyal listeners to the house afterwards. Oh, great. We, we appreciate that. We will be over. Looking forward to it. So that's probably a good amount of content for this week, Scott. We're basically out of time. So I really want to thank everyone for being loyal listeners. And please keep the feedback coming. We really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, everyone. And goodbye. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 